And you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 will be in verses 24 through 31. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look into His Word. Dearly Father, help us now. As we've just reminded ourselves that all creatures of our God and King are to be praising You, whether it's the, the sun, moon, and stars, whether it's the birds, whether it's fire, whether all of these things are all glorifying Your name because they're doing what You created them to do. You, the sovereign Creator of all things. And today as we see the last day of creation, and we see the beauty that this day reminds us of, dearly Father, help us to be people that not only understand Your Word, but actually live then according to what we've been taught. Help us now. We desperately need it. We are a creature in desperate need of You at all times. In Your name we pray. Amen. There's a couple great questions in the world of the why, the how, the who, and all of those other things that are going on. And uh, in the couple of weeks moving forward, we'll answer the question of why there is something rather than nothing. Um, and we will deal with that as we move forward. But in the last several weeks, I want to make sure you understand we've been dealing with the question, how is there something rather than nothing? And the answer to how is there something rather than nothing is the, the simple answer is God created it. That is why there is something instead of nothing. But the purpose statement will be the thing that we will find out in the upcoming weeks. With that being said, let's read the text in front of us, and then I'll talk to you about the journey that we're about ready to go on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and all the earth, and, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green, green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And this was the and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, we're going to see here, we're doing a three-part series on all these verses. And you may go, how in the world are you getting three sermons on this? Is because we need to pause and reflect on this for a second. First, we're going to see God creating the animal world. We're going to see even this word, let us. So we got the triune God being involved in creation. Not only that, but then next week we're going to look at the phrase that we, that we mankind, are image bearers of God. And then finally, after that, we're going to look at that creation mandate that God gives and these created beings a job to do. Now, when we look at all three of these things, these are so huge to us. 
I would argue that these are so foundational that if you don't understand these things, nothing else is going to make sense. And because we live in a world that is so rejected that their image bearers made in the image of God, then they don't understand even the simple aspects of being an image bearer made in the God, male and female, let alone they don't even understand then what they are to be doing and how are they to be functioning with creation. I mean, you look at the world around us and we see an assault on the womb, yet a, almost an evil love of nature to the point where nature is even better than humanity and we would lay down our lives for a floating, only cute-looking creatures. Remember, that's the whole movement. No one's all after the ugly-looking creatures. We all love the cute, cuddly creatures that we'll all lay down our lives for, but you go to some of the other ones, there's been no movement of, let's save the mosquitoes, or anything else like that. But we have all of these movements for the cute, cuddly ones that we make them God, and we destroy humanity in order to save the creature, not the image-bearer, and we have to wrestle with all of these things coming at us. And we go, um, I, I would argue, I think we're doing ourselves a favor by only doing three sermons because I think we could be here for much longer than that because I would say it is not that there is God's Word. God's Word speaks on so many things and we so quickly move through them and then the church doesn't know how to respond when someone asks a simple de definition of a question and I would say because you don't understand the image-bearing nature of God and so forth and everything else that comes. So before we go into all of that, we're going to do part one today, day six of creation. God is going to create the land animals. We see this at point number one of the sermon, the creation of the land animals. And I want, I want to be clear on this. When God is telling Moses what to write, God, who is sovereign over all things, knows how man is going to rebel later on in humanity, rebelling against God being the creator. They're also going, God also knows in his sovereign plan, and he has decreed it, that in this rebellion you're going to have this whole evolutionary thought process. Because in day six, which is almost comical, how many times it says, this creature according to its kind. And I want to go through, and I would love for you, if you ever want to go down through your underliner, underline how many times it says, after their kind. Just in case if you were wondering if this guy Charles is going to come along and do some stuff later on and trying to push away God, God said, we got that handled. I'm going to make it as abundantly clear as possible. So I just want to point out, let's work through this in verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. All right, now we have that word kind there. Just in case you're wondering, are we going to go from living creatures to something other than its kind? No, they are limited, and he's limiting the creative world to after their kind. So we have three different kinds here, speaking of living creatures. The first one you will see, and you're going to see in this, so again, we have to understand there's diversity, but not different kinds. You will have diversity within the kind, but not a totally different kind. So let me give you an example, dogs, there's a lot of diversity within dogs, but they're still at the end of the day a dog, all right, just to, to help you out, all right? We don't know what cats are, they're their own special category, but as we go through these things, we understand that you go from, these are what God has created, and they're limited within that. When my dog had puppies, we were not wondering what type of kind is going to be coming out. When our dog had puppies, we got other dogs, because dogs according to their kind. Notice the three here, living creatures, I mean, sorry, livestock, all right? So livestock here is the first one, or others' translations will even say cattle. So what we see here is the first thing that he is creating in the creation of land animals are animals that can be domesticated. 
Because you're going to see the difference here. So we have animals that can be domesticated. And you're going to go, in order for animals to be domesticated, there has to be someone that is coming to do what? Domesticate them, right? Like these. So we're, we're, he's building to a great crescendo of a created being that is coming later. But we have animals that can be domesticated. Notice next we have creeping things. Creeping things basically anything that creeps. And you go, wow, thanks, Tim. Those are insects. Those are snakes. Those are all the things that creep on this on this earth, and then he goes down to, and beasts. These are the wild animals. These are the animals that will never be domesticated by man because their very nature, they will not uh, be handled. These are the type of animals you go see in the zoo, by the way. You know, none of you bring home a pet lion, and we're going to go, because by very nature, this animal is a beast that is not to be tamed. But after all of these are created, verse 25, Remember, he says, and it is so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind. Okay, so now the beasts are going to produce according to their kind. Livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to their kind. Again, this word now, their kind, has been mentioned four times in just this one verse. I think there's a point that is being made. That even the created world obeys God by, being, by living according to the kind that God has made it. And God saw that it was good. Now, it's interesting, there's a pause here. It's almost like you're going to now get something different that's going to happen. Whenever Scripture pauses, because the phrase, it is good, is at the end of every day one, day two, day three, day four, and all of a sudden in the middle of day six, we get land animals created, and it was good, as if there's now a break and something is going to happen. Because now, we are not going to get a general description of something, we are getting a pause in Scripture where you're now going to go, and now God's going to speak again. God is now talking, and before that, God would talk at the beginning, and everything would take place. God talks at the beginning, everything takes place. Now in the middle of it, He's going to speak again. And remember, all of us should always remember when God speaks, all of us who love Him listen. All right, so now God is going to speak, and what He speaks and what He says is important here. Because everything that he has done up to this point is getting ready for now what he's going to do. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, I've been debating on between a dog and a baby and which example to use. I think I'm going to go with the baby example in this one. All right. So one day, if the Lord allows you to have a kid, the, the, the news gets told that you're going to have this child, right? You got a nine-month warning, basically, right? And nine months from now, things are going to change. Well, what usually starts to happen is they call it the nesting stage. All right, if it happened in, in my own family, all of a sudden one day Allison would wake up and everything has to be ready for the kid that moment. All right, so that, guess what we're doing that Saturday? All right, we're getting everything ready. She's pulling out everything. You know, you have to get a bag ready. I'm like, the baby's not supposed to come for another six months. Well, we got our hospital bag ready. We have it all ready, and she's just making sure everything's ready. She would pull out the onesies. She would grab diapers, and she'd look at them, and she would start laughing about, I wonder what the baby's going to look like in this, and all of these things that are coming. And all of a sudden, all the room is getting ready. The crib's got to be put together. I'm like, you know, we're going to be in the crib for like a couple months even after we bring him home. All right? and we, but we got to get it all ready. Everything prepared. And as we're preparing for this child, you're thinking about what the room's going to look like, where the, you know, the, the noise and this little noisemaker needs to be, and you're getting it all ready. This is literally what God Himself is doing with planet Earth, getting Earth ready for mankind. 
Mankind is not an afterthought. Mankind is not, I'm going to create the created world, and then all of a sudden I'll put man in it as if he's now the, the messer of it all up. All of this is created for man. And remember we talked about this. When the sun, moon, and stars were to help tell us days and weeks and months, not only do the animals use that, but the animals don't keep track of days. They don't keep track of months. They don't keep track of years. They just know what time the season it is to move and go. But he's creating all of these things for us to know and for us to live in. And even all of the plants and everything else now are ready for mankind to come on, the very image bearer of God himself. So now, point two, we have a phrase here. Then God says, let us make man. This is as far as we will go today in this text. With this phrase, let us make man. As I said before, there's a break in this stage. Because remember, God has said, let, and then he would tell something to happen. Now we have a let, and now we have a plural pronoun, which is us in here. Let us, and now what are we going to do? Do something. Let us make man. And so when we pay attention to this, here's the part we have to understand. The truth that we're about ready to talk about here is so foundational to our understanding that we must wake up and get this. That man is created by God. Man is a created being by God. That is huge. And you might say, well, Tim, duh, we know this. And I'm going to say, you may think you know this. And I would say, I think I know this, but I many times don't function this way. That man is a created being by God. So this means by definition, you are not God. Let's help you out. You are not God because God created you. That makes you not God, all right? Also, this text would also say you are not a God. Because if you were a God, you would not be created. By very definition, a created being is not God. Another way of putting it, you are not a God that one day will be, you are not a somewhat of a thing that one day will be a God. By the very fact that you are a created being. So you're not God, you will never be God, and you will never, ever, ever be anything other than a created being. This is something that we need to make sure we're clear on. And also it says, let us make man. So this means man did not evolve from a lifeless matter over billions of years of time and chance and just barely evolve past the animal world of monkeys and make it to the human body. This is not what the text of Scripture tells us. The text of Scripture tells us that God created man. And God is going to create man in his own image, which we will see next week. What this also tells us is this, that man is not on a pointless planet, in a pointless universe, rotating around a sun that will one day burn out and end our pointless existence on this planet. Because God is the creator, the sustainer of it all. And He is the one that gives us our purpose. Why? Because He is the creator, so we look to Him for our created purpose. And not only that, nor now is man the master of his own fate, the master of his own morality. Man is created, not evolved. Man does not determine his morality. Man does not determine his morality by a herd rule or even by the individual because the individual and even the herd is created by God and will give an account to their Creator one day. This is why at the heart 
of the reason why the evolutionary thought process has been so adopted by our world is if we can explain away our creation by just a bunch of time and chance, now we can move ourselves out from under this creative ruler God, and now we can determine ourselves what we want to do. And this is what mankind has been doing from the very beginning. We are rebelling against our creator God, that we don't like him involved in our lives. Now we're literally trying the, the hallmark of it, or you want to say the paramount of this Rebellion against Almighty God is not only God, you have no right over me, I'm going to now determine my own self. And this is the self-autonomy that started way back in the garden, has worked itself all the way to the point now where you can even determine yourself. And we wait for you to determine yourself, because not even the way God created you is enough to determine yourself. Now you, your self-autonomy has gone so great that now you can rebel even against your own created self. And so what we see here is let us make man in our own image. Literally, we have God as the sovereign creator, the king and ruler of all mankind. God is the sovereign creator, the king and ruler of all mankind. He has created and he is the sustainer and ruler of all mankind. Now we're going to turn our Bibles to Isaiah. But before we do that, though, Isaiah chapter 45, if you want to go there. And when you get there, I'll, then we'll talk about this for a second. All right, in Isaiah chapter 45, I'm going to give you a little background here real quick. Isaiah, again, is, a, is written very early on when, is, when the nation of Israel is rebelling against God. God is warning them to repent and return. But in the warning, He is going to also tell them a promise. And the promise is going to be, even though I'm warning you, you're still going to rebel because you're a bunch of rebels. All right, Literally, by definition, you are a rebel and you're going to rebel. But when you do rebel, I will be faithful to my word that I will bring you into captivity, which, is, which I'm going to do because that's what you've rebelled against me, but I will also bring you back. That even though you rebel, when the time comes to bring you back, and when that time comes, I will bring you back, because I promised it, and you know why I can do it? It's because I am God, and you rebelled against me, and I will do what I've said I will do. Now, what happens, though, is God, this plays out in time and space with humanity. All right, And God, the creator of humanity, can say, this is going to happen, and guess what? It happens. Why? Because he is the ruler, the sovereign creator over all things. Now, there's going to be the great rebellion. Israel is going to go off into captivity. And long before this king is ever even born, he's not even a glimmer in his parents' eye, before he even exists, God calls him by name and tells what's going to happen. Isaiah 45 here, verses 1 through 9. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, another way of saying to his chosen person, to Cyrus, he names the king by name, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, and that gates may not be closed. Literally, God is saying, before this guy is even born, I will bring him about as a ruler of my appointedness to do these things, and nations will fall before him because he's going to actually do something to bring Israel back to the land which I have promised and let's keep reading. I, God saying this, will go before you and, the exalt, and level the exalted places. Exalted places are those areas of, like in, 
in battles or whatever, these were the, before we had castles, these were the high places. He's going to level them, not just destroy them, but level them. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. These are speaking of the gates of these cities. I will give the treasures of the darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. We're going to get to why does he have the right to speak to Cyrus like this? For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I called you by your name. I named you, though you did not know me. He did not wait for Cyrus to put on his kind, good britches. He said, no, this is who I've created you to be. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no other God. I equipped you, though you did not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun to the east that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light, I create darkness. What is he appealing back to? Creation, all right? The creator God. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And we're going to pause there for a second. God is saying, you, Cyrus, will be my instrument to bring Israel out of captivity back to the promised land. And the crazy part is, Cyrus is even going to help rebuild with his own money. And where did he get the money? The sheer fact that God allowed him to destroy other nations and take the treasures from his own wealth there. He's going to build the temple and also start the wall building. Little way God works. Anyone know how they built the first tabernacle? With the jewels that they got when they left Egypt, what do the Egyptians do? Here's your wealth. God is plundering the nations to build his own home. Because God is the one who owns it all. And how does God have the right to do this? How does God, who is uh, all the affairs of man, look down at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What? are you making? Why are you making me like this? Your work has no handles. Basically, the, the pot does not have the right to say back to the potter, hey, don't make me like this. And so we start here. And I want to make sure we're clear. Yes, we will deal with, does man have any responsibility? What about free will and all these other things? All right, But I want to be clear on this. Where does the Bible start? The Bible does not start with, let's figure out man's freedom and free will over here. The Bible starts with God as sovereign creator, and from his throne, then we understand the rest of it. But if we're not careful, we can switch it and make man God, and God then the creator, and we can get ourselves so twisted in Gordian knots when we would deal with this. Because at the end of the day, whether we will be able to explain the infinite God with a finite mind, all right, here is the thing that's very clear, all right? There is no, like, alluding to this, that God says, Cyrus, if you're willing, maybe we'll do this. Maybe this will happen. I hope this happens. No, because God is the, pot, is the one who has, is the potter saying to the clay, here's what you're going to do. And why was this all done? So people would love Cyrus? So Cyrus's name would be mentioned? No, notice what text says. I will go before you, go verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I have done this because my name will be made great. I have called you, I have named you, even though you do not know me, I'm doing this for my glory and my glory alone. Back to Genesis chapter 1. Only the Creator 
God can say that. I cannot say that to any of you. I did not make you. God made you. I have no right in that same way to speak like God speaks. I speak as a mere man to other men. But God, the creator of all mankind, can say this. So many times we don't pause and reflect on this, but I, I want to spend some moment on the let us. So when we hear this word us, us is a plural word, all right? It cannot mean one. Just help you out, no matter what goes on in our world. The term us does not refer to an individual, okay? And so when we come to let us make man in our own image, by the sheer fact that God now is speaking in the plural should cause us to wake up, because up until now we've heard God saying this, God doing that, now God speaks in the plural. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about the Trinity. Now before you all go, oh boy... Here we go. I, number one, I will not give you an analogy of the Trinity because they do not exist. All right, let's, so if anybody ever starts a Trinity talk with you and saying the Trinity is like, and then they give you an analogy. All right, the egg does not work, the four-leaf clover, three or four, depending on if you're Irish or not, the clover does not work. All of those fail short because there is nothing in this earth that is like the Trinity. Almost like we needed a commandment to not make any graven image or any like this because there's nothing that exists here on earth. Why? Because He is the Creator God. All right? He is above His creation. Now we're going to start talking about the Trinity. So let me go through what the Trinity is. By definition, this is coming out of James White book, The Forgotten Trinity. The Trinity is within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let me, another way of saying it is this, the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. I'll say it one more time. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, in that statement there, you may have heard this word begotten, all right? Now, begotten has caused some major conundrums in our church history. This word begotten, and many of you may have heard this in, Genesis, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, all right? And that's the famous where you hear this word begotten. That word begotten means this, one of a kind, and it usually refers to a child. It means one of a kind, Sadly, because many times it can also be used as begotten, like we would say parents begot a kid, but the way this word is used in the Greek is one of a kind. And so when we look at this, is Jesus is God's one of a kind, eternally begotten in relationship. So we do not believe, and we'll get to this in a second, that God the Father was around, and all of a sudden, sometime in eternity past, He begot the Son. The teaching that has always been very clear from Scripture is that eternally we have God the Father and God the Son as eternally in a father-son relationship. So this has been their eternal relationship as father and son. And that's why the word begotten is one of a kind, is one of a kind son. Now, if we take the last writing of the book of Revelation, which is uh, John writing on the island of Pathmos in the 90s, AD 95, some say 92 or whatever, in the 80s there, and then John is the last apostle that dies. 
So let's say we roughly have them all dying around 100 AD, all right? And after 100 AD, the church is going to be under immense persecution. Until one day, Rome uh, is going to then go from the great persecutor of the church to now where they start to really accept the church in its things. And we can talk about all that stuff, how it happened later in church history. But what happens during this time is there's a lot of doctrinal error that's going to start to creep into the church. So in 32 AD, this guy named Arius, he is going to start to teach that Jesus was created by the Father. So he's going to take the whole begetting thing that the Father at one time through the Virgin Mary, that's where Jesus was created, and he did not exist eternally as the Son that Jesus was a created being. So Arius is going to go around and start teaching this. This is where we get Arianism, that Jesus is not God. He's like a created God, all right? Now, that heresy is going to start to pick up in the Roman church. And a church father named Athanasius is going to see this, and he's going to go, this is heresy. And heresy is starting to creep in. They're saying that Jesus is not God. And if Jesus is not God, what's at stake? Your very salvation, because now you just have some guy dying for you, not God, the perfect lamb dying for you. So your salvation is at stake. Athanasius sees this, and he's like, we need to call a church council. We need to have a meeting about this, because this is heresy that we cannot allow. This is not the true teaching of the apostles. This is not right. Well, he needed the emperor Constantine to call a church council. Well, how do you get the emperor Constantine to... Call a church council. Well, Athanasius is like, over my dead body is this going to be taught as truth? So, guess what he does? He sneaks through the basically the armor guards of the emperor at that time, grabs the horse's bridle of, the, of Emperor Constantine. He says, I will not let go until you give me this church council so we can destroy Arianism because it's wrong. And Constantine basically just goes, sure, go ahead. You can head off to Nicaea and come up with something, all right? And so guess what we get from a group of fathers, church fathers in the Nicene area coming up with a statement or a creed? Guess what we call it? The Nicene Creed, imagine that. And if you flip to the back of your, of your sermon notes there, you will actually see the Nicene Creed. Now, before we go through this, I want to make sure we're clear because I'll say this nicely. No one in this church thinks this way. But here's what happens. People who do not know, we won't call them ignorant, we'll just say people who do not know think that in the Council of Nicaea they came up with this. They did not come up with this. This was already clearly taught through Scripture. They were just acknowledging what Scripture already said and putting in a summary form. So it is not as if the doctrine of the Trinity was never taught before this. They just never had to write it all down in one spot. You following this? And so it is not that they came up with the Trinity in 1325. But sadly, many people looking back at church history say, oh, they came up with it in 325. And you go, no, they were just boldly proclaiming what was being attacked. And they said, we're just going to put it in one spot. Now, before we read this, though, and you can't tell I'm pretty jazzed about this, because I would tell you this. If you do not believe what, we're about, what I'm about ready to read, I'll be as clear as day on this. I would, I would boldly proclaim that you are probably not saved. Okay, this is as clear as this teaching is. If you do not believe this, if you do not go like that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, if you get the Trinity wrong, you're not believing in God. 
You're believing in some other form of this, but if you do not believe, this is as a base, about as basic as can be. And if you also want to help me out, all of you who call CBC home, this is what we believe. All right, actually written down in one spot, right? And so let's go through this here real quick. And some of you may sound like there's a little bit of apostles, the, um, the Apostles' Creed in this and things like that, but here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the one begotten from the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He became flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scripture and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit the Lord and life giver, the one who proceeds from the Father, whom the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets, in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Now, real quick, before you go, well, what's up with that Catholic thing in the middle? Uh, Catholic there... The word, when it is lowercase, it means universal. When it's uppercase and it has a Rome in front of it, it's saying that church in Rome, all right? But the term Catholic just means all y'all if we were down south, all right? And so when it says the universal church, it means you're part of the church that is there. Now, I mean, if you want to memorize that, Probably one of the best things you can memorize if someone says, what do you believe? And there you go. But I want to point out just a couple of things. Notice it even goes out of its way and it mentions Pontius Pilate. And you're like, what's up with Pilate? You know what they're trying to say? This is historical fact. You can look that guy up and you can look through the records and you can see Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. There's no question about that. They're writing this to give you time and place for all of these things. And this is what we believe. If you are a follower of God, the true God of true God, literally it says, just in case you're wondering, he's the guy, all right? I mean, I love how they go out of their way to go, he is God and God alone. There is no question about it. So when Athanasius and the other church fathers got together, they were not reinventing the wheel. I want to be clear on this. They're just boldly proclaiming through a creed, here is where we stand. And so I want to make sure we're clear on this. Because there's a part of evolutionary thought process that even though many people say, well, we don't believe in evolution, many of us, there's concepts of the theory that seeps into our thinking. And here's the concept. Evolution tells us that we are continually progressing from a lesser matter to greater matter. That we're evolving from the not as good to the better. So when you take that thought process and then you take it to historical things, the ignorant people were back then... The smart people are now, and everything in the past are just a bunch of people who have no idea what they're talking about. We can't learn from them. We can only learn from right now. So that theory goes through all the things. It goes through the Constitution. It was written by a bunch of old guys. We can just reinterpret it, to, and you just fill it in. The laws and everything else. 
That is an evolutionary theory that has gone into our thinking. But I want to help you out. In theology, it's the complete opposite. And how do you know this? In Jude 3, there's only one chapter. In Jude 3, Jude says that we need to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. When it comes to theology, you are not contending for the faith that has been delivered all over the place. It was once delivered, and we contend for that one faith. We don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. We don't have to sit here and say, hmm, I wonder about this issue or that issue. It is interesting, and I've been in many churches where this has happened, where we've had theological debates and issues that are going on. Well, what about this or what about that? And the the funny part about it all is there is yet to be an issue that has arisen where the church has not had a creed or a council that handled that issue. Because there is nothing new under the sun because it is the faith once delivered. And this is what gives us confidence as believers. No matter what the world has to say at us, no matter what all these things have to come at us, we know that we have the faith once delivered to us. And so then we have to ask ourselves, why is the Trinity important? In closing, I want to make sure we understand, like, what's up with the Trinity? Yeah, that was really a fun theological statement there. But the Trinity is important because... This truth is so vital to everything that comes afterwards, and sadly by many is ignored. I'll give you an example. If God was one and not three, if God was one and not three, He by definition could not be, as John says, love. Because He then would have to learn love, because if He was just one and not three, He would have to learn love. He could even yearn for love, but He could not be love Himself, because in order to love, love must acquire an object. But in the Trinity, we have love as it truly is, where God the Father loves His Son eternally, and God the Father loves the Spirit eternally, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. I think I got them all there. They loved each other eternally from all time. And that is why God can say by very definition He is love, because love also requires relationships. The very fabric of creation is bound together. The very essential nature of God is He is creator. He is creator not only of mankind, but He is literally the creator of love and the creator of all relationships because that is what we see in the Trinity. All relationships yet to come will be based off of that. The beauty of even in the Trinity submitting to one another, co-equal, co-in everything, but yet one being the one who submits to the other is a beautiful thing. And guess what? Marriage is going to be based on this. Other relationships are going to be based on this. All of it back to the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, before the world was created, dwelt in a beautiful love relationship with one another. The Father and the Son are perfectly united before creation. They were loving one another, they were serving one another, and they were glorifying one another. And here's what we can be confident of, very clearly confident of, the sheer fact is let us make man, is that God did not create us out of a need, out of a needy desire to fulfill an internal relationship void. All right, The Trinity was not in void of something that they'd create man for man to fill, because guess what? None of us could ever fill it. The sheer fact that God created, the Bible tells us, is for His own glory, that we would be image bearers of Him, bringing Him glory. Now, there is so much more we could say about this. There's so many more things we could talk about, but here's what I want to end with. Man is a created being. Hopefully we got that through our 
thick little heads that we think all the time. Because let's be honest with ourselves, we're really big stuff in our own minds. I mean, no one has to tell you that you're underappreciated, right? I mean, but why do we deal with that? Because in our own minds, we are going, you know what, almost we did God a favor by being made. And God is saying, no, I literally am going to form you out of dust. Because guess where you're going to go? Dust to dust, all right? And then we're going to find out, actually, it's not dust. It's dust, actually, to glory one day. But you boil down the human body, you get hardly a couple of chemicals, and that's about it. But what gives you your value? We'll come back next week and we'll find out. There actually, human value has intrinsic value, value by definition. But if you don't believe in God, humanity only has the value that humanity places on it. And so we get phrases, some of the most horrible phrases that have ever been utterated, and sadly they seem to be utterated in the German language, life worthy of not life. Right? How do you get a phrase that you get to where there's life that is not worthy of life? When you don't believe that man is created in the image of God, you get a little symbol, you get a little hand motion, and all of a sudden that group starts determining which life is worthy of life, and we get a rebellion against God. Uh, I would say America is not too far from determining that, but what we learn today is this, that man is created being, and we are made to worship and to know His Creator. So the task in front of us is, are we going to spend the time that is needed by digging deep into His words to know God? I would encourage you, yes, the Trinity is, can be difficult to grasp, but even grasping part of it is one of the most beautiful things ever to see how God is in perfect union within Himself. And it also causes you to realize how little you know of God and how much great, greater information there is to know about Him that will cause your praise to be lifted even higher. So in closing, I just want to end with that statement again, that man is a created being made to worship and know his Creator. May we desire to know Him. Dearly Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you that you are the Creator God, the one who sustains all things. Help us now as we enter our week to love you more, to be obedient to what you've called us to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.